Hi everyone. Jake and I are so grateful for all of your support. We want to remind all of our listeners to always dive within the limits of your training and experience and always follow the advice of your instructors and dive masters. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for formal dive instruction. We are so thrilled to have this space to share our stories and experiences and thankful we get to share them with all of you. Stay safe out there and always have fun. Welcome to episode eight, our first remote episode. We are recording remotely because Miles has left me. (laughs) I have not left you, but I did come home to Kansas, um, the heartland, just for a week to see my family. I haven't been back in a while, so seeing the family and, you know, just seeing what they're up to and getting to tell them all about the cool dives I've been on and the podcast and just doing a little catch up with everybody. You have been doing a lot of uh, talking about the podcast because I've noticed that our Instagram followers are skewing to the Midwest now. I know. <laughs> I, um, well, I've been talking about it, but I've also been giving out our stickers. Oh, yeah. So I think we're getting like random <laughs> searches a lot of times. Well, that would be awesome. And if you guys are in the Kansas City area um, or in Kansas generally, and you happen to see a uh, free descent sticker on a lamppost or something, uh, take a picture and send it to us. I th- I will laugh my head off if, if you do that. I, I think that would be amazing. So please it do it. Coffee shops. And coffee shops. Yes. Okay. <laughs> coffee shops all over Kansas now are marked by free descent. So you're all welcome. Um, and thank you, Miles, for doing more to, to promote the podcast than me. <laughs> Um, we actually did order more stickers, the ones, okay, so I have to admit something, the stickers we ordered originally are not waterproof, and I put them on my tanks, and they fell off. Yeah. So oh. I ordered new stickers that are better stickers that don't fall off uh, in the water. Yeah, it is up for some new stickers. I mean, the old ones are nice, just like to put on a water bottle or something, but it is up for some new stickers if you want to put it on your tank or like your box or something like that. Yeah. So because Miles has been away from me, um, I went diving with somebody else and it was a great fun dive. We went to look for a site in San Diego that's a little bit hard to find. It's called Secret Garden. And uh, we got distracted by some interesting uh, geological features underwater and just did not find the garden. But we had an amazing dive. Did you Um, get distracted or did you get (laughs) narked? No, we got distracted. We got distracted, Mark. Okay, I just I know you no. got. <laughs> you you know I you know I do get narked. No no no, I did not. I actually did not get narked on this dive. Um, we went to 110 feet. I was on nitrox, so we were, I was limiting our depth. Um, but we went to 110 feet and we saw some really cool stuff. Uh, got Victor, my dive buddy, got a couple of great photos of me. Of course, my my camera is dangling like six feet below me, so I'm like. Oh, I don't look very good. Wow, nice. But they, very, very streamlined. Yeah, well, I was I was 10 feet <laughs> off the bottom, so I wasn't dragging anything up, but it's just not a great look. But I was yeah. like, damn, if this if this camera wasn't dangling, just, uh, it would look so much better. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll try and get after it in Photoshop <laughs> or something like that. Um, So I also have been teaching my first ever classes as a solo instructor. Um, and like, you know, instructor, like instructor and I'm, there's no other instructor with me. Um, I'm just, I'm just teaching and, um, I have my DM, but I'm not, you know, I don't have a backup plan. There's nobody else saying, Hey, what about this? Hey, what about this? Um, so miles, I have a couple of thoughts here that I'm just going to, we're just going to kind of run through. I'm just be like my, my point blank reactions to, uh to to my first couple of classes okay uh number one imposter syndrome is so real it's so real i'm like what am i doing here how am i doing this how does it keep working like i'm just doing what i know and it just keeps working and i'm like wait am i good at this or was i trained really well or am i just getting lucky 
Yeah. And I think it's probably a combination of all of the above um, at one time or another. So yeah, this, this, these, these two classes that I'm teaching, I have one class that I'm teaching both the pool and the ocean for, and then I'm covering actually for you I in know. the pool. I- and then the, and then they're going with another instructor to the ocean at the same time that I'm taking my first class to the ocean. So <laughs> I have these two classes kind of work simultaneously on alternating days. Um, which has, which has actually been a lot of fun because, um, uh, one class started before the other one. So one class was my guinea pig for the first set of pool skills. And then second class did those skills and then got ahead of the first class. So then they were the guinea pig for the second set of skills. And then I, you know, it's this constant work in progress of like, how do I make this class more efficient? How do I, you know, are there skills that can be combined? Obviously there are certain things like math skills, um, that are listed literally sequentially on, on our, on our flow charts. So, um, it's easy for us to kind of combine those skills, but are there other things, you know, and, and then you want to also give them plenty of time to like swim around and actually experience weightlessness, get you know, kind of get used to buoyancy. We have a, we train in a pool that has multiple levels. So it's good for them to go down and then back up and then back down so they can experience kind of adding air to their BCD as they go down and then letting that air out as they go up. Um, so that has been a very fun experience for me. Okay. Next point. Someone called me sir and I hated it. I hated it so much. Yeah. I was like, don't, don't do that. Don't do, no, 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 I do not have, the, I, the, the authority thing doesn't work for me. I don't yeah. want, I don't want you to look at me as like, sir, I want, diving, I feel like doesn't work. Maybe this is just me, but diving doesn't work. Diving instruction doesn't work. If me as an instructor, you look at me as, as like authority. I want, I want it to be more familiar because I want you to be able to come to me with questions, concerns, problems. And I know that a lot of times you're going to go to the dive master for that anyway, but I want to feel more open. And someone said, uh, you know, I asked somebody, oh, hey, would you mind moving your stuff over just so we can, you know, we have a little more room for everybody to set up. And he goes, yeah, no problem, sir. And I'm like, oh my God, no. Yeah. And that's okay. So honestly, so my answer to that is that we get a lot of different age groups and some, some age groups are going to feel more comfortable and even feel just like more comfortable in the class if they call you sir. And if you are that authoritative figure for them. And so like, you have to take, take a step back and think like, okay, this is the way I want to be perceived. This is what I want. But it might not be what every student needs. And so you just have to let, like, act, be yourself, just be yourself, and let everyone view you the way that they need to do that to learn best and to have the most valuable experience for themselves. And so everyone's going to view you differently. Like, it might come out as Sir, it might come out as Jake, it might come out as J-Dog, you know, whatever. I <laughs> uh, No, they cannot like, call me J-Dog. Nobody calls me J-Dog. I, I'm going to call you J-Dog for now. No, you're not. No, I thought I was – you have so many names for me through this podcast now. <laughs> but, like, so I know that, like, some people have a better time viewing me as an instructor some people have a better time viewing me as like almost like a daughter figure, like when they're an older person. Um, some people have a better time viewing me as like an older sister. When I have like kids, a lot of time it's like an older sister role. And that's all good. And that's all okay. Because I know that like at the end of the day, I'm being myself and I'm being genuine in the class. And whatever way the person needs to view me, as long as it's positive, it's okay with me. Okay. That's, that's good advice. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So miles, my first ocean dives with my first open water class are this weekend. And I was hoping you could give me like your biggest tip or your like helpful hints to keep me from going insane and like overthinking this whole thing. Man, that one is a tough one. But I did think about this question when I heard that you were doing your first open water dives as an instructor. And so, you know, I've just kind of been thinking about you for sure. 
Oh, I appreciate you've been thinking about me. <laughs> Whatever. No, you know. Well, and I'm also thinking about the fact that you were with my class and stuff in the water in the pool. But um, I would say my biggest piece of advice for the ocean is that even more so than in the pool, just be ready and be positive about the unexpected because nine times out of 10, stuff is not going to go the way that you organize it in your head. And that, you know, you went over in the IBC and that's okay. And as long as everybody's safe and having fun and meeting standards, then just roll with it. And no matter what, just keep a smile on your face because that is going to make all the difference for your students. Thank you for saying that because I've been picturing every moment of the ocean dives since we got out of the pool, basically. And I'm picturing like every little thing I'm going to do and everything I'm going to say, and I'm like scripting it all out. And I just know that like coming from being a dive master, like that's never how ocean dives work. Something always happens like, oh, someone needs help with their fins or someone like, you know, a mask strap breaks, you have to fix the mask or, you know, something will happen. And then, you know, I have to like the plan changes, right? You adapt, you, you be flexible enough to make that change and make everybody, you know, make it work. But I've been like stressing about it. So I just needed to hear you say all of that so that I wouldn't go absolutely nuts all week. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, and and I'm going to have a good weekend. So I'm excited. Um, are there like struck, like class structuring? <clears throat> are there like class structuring tips that you would give me? Um, you know, it always depends on the weather and depends on the divers that you have. So no matter what, just go off of what you think your students can handle and what the weather is going to allow that day. But if you have perfect weather and you have you know all of our students are rock stars but if you just have like really exceptional and everyone's flying through skills then I would say try your best to get a lot of stuff done on day one so like on dive one just let the divers experience the ocean because you know have them do the dive one skills maybe have them do a couple flexies but in general like the ocean should be like the newest and biggest thing for them on dive one okay. on dive two no i would say i would say feel out how the divers are doing for dive two and if everybody seems to have a lot of energy and they're feeling good then i would try to do a lot of the flexies including sisa and compass on dive two it'll make your life a lot easier on dive three and four because you won't have to like you won't have to bring a float with you most likely and um the float really helps with compass as well so mm. so if you can get that done on dive two highly recommend and then also just like if you get a bunch of stuff out of the way on dive one and two, as long as conditions and your students allow, then dive three and four on day two can be a lot more fun and relaxing for people. And they get to experience more of like what it's actually like just going on a dive by like with their buddy and with a dive master or whatever. That's really good to know. Okay. I will take those tips to the ocean and next episode, you guys can hear all about how it went. Now we are really excited to welcome on a super special guest. Jake can tell you a little bit more about him. All right. We now welcome on two very special guests. We have the founder and CEO of Dive Heart, Jim Elliott, and the executive director of Dive Heart, Tina Marie Hernandez here with us. Uh, so welcome to Free Descent, guys. It's great Thanks. to have you. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you very much. Great to be of here. Of course. We actually met, I don't know if you remember this, we met a year and a half ago in Cozumel at Dive Paradise. I was there uh, with some friends 
and you were there. I think this would have been just before you filmed the documentary. Yeah, it would have been. September 2022, sorry, sorry, September 2021 was when, was when I was there. So it would have been right before you filmed the documentary. And uh, I was a dive master at the time. Uh, I've moved up to instructor now. And um, my, my friend Miles and I, we, we talk a lot about, um, you know, adaptive scuba. We've gotten into it a little bit out here in San Diego. It's a bit of a different world out here, Mm -hmm. but um uh, Jim, through a mutual friend, we Jim and I connected uh, after Scuba Show, and we wanted to have you guys on to uh, kind of give more of a broad picture of how does adaptive scuba develop. I mean, I know you've been doing it for a while, um, so why don't we start with sort of what what brought about Dive Heart? Well, this is our twenty second year. And I thought it was going to be a little club thing, and it's turned into something much, much bigger. Uh, we're international. One of our biggest programs is in Malaysia. But uh, I've guided and taught blind skiers for decades uh, and since the mid-'80s. And so I saw skiing turn people's lives around, help build confidence, independence, and self-esteem. So I thought, you know, when I get out of the media business, the kids are grown and gone, I'll, uh, I'll try this in diving because I'd been diving since college as a journalism major. I thought if I ever met Jacques Cousteau, I better know how to scuba dive. <laughs> yeah, I know it's crazy, right? I had no burning desire to learn to dive. But then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. So my thrill is really just getting guys standing up out of wheelchairs and looking down for the first time neutrally buoyant in the pool going, oh, my God, I'm standing up for the first time since my injury. And it's it's really grown since then, right? Yeah. When I came on board uh, year 10 for Dive Heart. So I've been with them about uh, 12, 13 years. And when I came aboard, they were ready to take the next step. They were still that smallish um club thing. Jim had been to a couple different countries, um, having been invited and they kept talking about writing a manual, right? They wanted to teach people. They wanted to become a certifying agency and take the knowledge that they had built and make it real. And I stepped in and said, all right, you guys want a book? Let's get a book. And, you know, kind of was the, the whip master and saying, you know, no more edits and this is fine. Let's move on. That type of thing. So we got it done in 2014. We may uh, we launched as a training agency, and since then it's all about growth. But more importantly, it's about the quality of the instructors and the buddies and the adaptive divers we set out into the world. Um, for me, it is quality way over quantity, and so we've taken our time in growing. But I think we've hit one of those tipping points, right? They tell you, you know, you're an overnight sensation after someone says, yeah, I've been working at this for 20 years. And that's kind of where we are today. Yeah, we um, we have different books of business, I like to call them. So uh, Tina Marie mentioned training. So that's one one book of business that we do. We, we are instructor trainers um, all over the country and um, growing all over the world and Uh, more and more people wanting to come on. And and like she said, safety and and quality is really very important. But also research is is very important. I I kind of intuitively thought this was therapeutic from the very beginning and went right away to a university medical center and and reached out to their physical therapy folks. And subsequently, we've done five studies with uh, Midwestern University. And most recently, we were in Cozumel, with, we were asked last year at DEMA, the big international dive show, if we wanted to present to doctors from Mayo Clinic on scuba therapy. And we're like, oh, let's think about this. <laughs> yeah, of course. You know what I mean? It's like Mayo Clinic. Wow. And I said, where's your conference at? And they said, Cozumel. And we just laughed. And I go, well, that makes sense. You're at a dive show asking me this, right? So in May, Tina Marie and I went to Cozumel, dove with 30 physicians from Mayo Clinic, presented to them, sat in on a lot of their presentations, talked, you know, while we're diving and during surface intervals about scuba therapy and hyperbarics, scuba therapy and sports medicine, different aspects. And we were had the wherewithal to bring David Marsh, the filmmaker who did the documentary Adapting to Dive, which to date has won 10 International Film Festival Awards. So we brought him along and he's done a wonderful job in doing 
if you went to our YouTube channel, there's a whole category called, uh, it's a playlist called, um, Divers with heart. Divers with heart. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then, so he's doing one now he's interviewed 20 doctors for Mayo and it's going to be docs on doctors on dive heart, right? Doctors on dive heart. Yeah. Yeah. And just the kind of their, their reaction, you know, a lot of them had just met us. Um, poor guy, uh, people, Jim, you'll see him. He has his dive heart rash guard on today. And it almost looked like a dive heart trip and not a Mayo Clinic trip when you were on the boats. Um, but it was a wonderful experience. And we're going to go back next year and hopefully um, meet more people and do another presentation. And we see our job as promoting adaptive diving, um, being the, the group that takes the hardest cases and figuring out how um, to bring someone uh, safely into the water and to enjoy diving, and then as well as disseminating the knowledge that we gain, right? Sharing that and making sure that for everybody else, there are more than enough people in the world that would benefit from this uh, type of activity. And so we just want to make sure that as many people um, as we can help uh, get that opportunity. Yeah, in, in 97, when I started teaching people with disabilities, um, none, nobody wanted to get involved. I mean, dive, dive shops said, well, wait a minute, people with disabilities don't have money, right? I'm afraid of the liability. And they said, and it's a lot of work, and I don't want to work that hard. You know what I mean? So that no, was, it, I see the, yeah, I, one of my biggest things would be liability that would be my biggest question first question when we worked with another group that came to san diego and seeing all the wheelchairs around the pool my instructor brain just went like off i was i don't know how to do this and i'm really glad i'm with people that do know how to do this yeah. So how do you get past that conversation how do you get a dive shop or an instructor or someone like us to say you know, we to or a boat, yeah, better example, a boat to say we will take this on. Yeah, a lot of it is you know experience, right? So that's what we we rely a lot on people having experiences, getting experiences. Um, you know, hopefully the experience you had uh, at the that poolside was positive. But what we do is we invite people. That's why we're going out and we're showing like the documentary is a great way to introduce people. How do we transfer? They can see it being done. They can see how we, you know, take five people, six people to move a wheelchair onto a boat, how we strap them down, how we're transferring them in and out of the water and the care that we take. <clears throat> and with those examples, you know, a person who owns a boat or a person who wants to maybe come and, and join, I can't tell you how many people, I had, I had someone who's like, I'm a diver, I wanna help you, I don't wanna be a buddy, let me help on the, on the deck and let me observe you and let me get comfortable. One of the pillars that we go by is challenge by choice. So, go ahead, come and just immerse yourself, you know, observe and see. And it's funny because a lot of the people who, you know, are like, oh, the most, the most afraid after they get comfortable, they're the people like jumping in and being like, oh, I can help with this and I can help with that. And, um, and that was one of the things we did even with this Mayo Clinic um, doctors, we, we took some of the easy things that we are able to demonstrate and showing them. So we did the, an exercise with them where we were showing how we get someone in and out off the boat, right? In's easy, you toss them out. It's <laughs> where <laughs> so you have to be coordinated. Um, but then Jim and I have also started a program where we will travel to your dive shop or we'll go to um, your resort and we will help you evaluate where are you on being able to offer this type of service to people. And let me tell you, when we talk to them, I'm like, <clears throat> divers, a lot of times are very loyal to the places they go, especially if they feel good about coming out, right? They're, oh, yeah. Like, that's, oh, yeah. Oh, that's my shop. That's my place. That's my, you know, everybody knows me. Adaptive divers aren't any different. If anything, they're more forceful in that attachment because there are not a lot of places in the world where they can easily go independently and dive and feel secure. So when we get a group, so we're about to go to Grenada 
Um, and we're going to, we went there last year doing our little program and doing the evaluation and making sure not just the boats and the crew are okay, but the accommodations, right? And you're going to different countries, so they don't have ADA everywhere, American disabilities, right? Um, but people try a lot of, there's a lot of expats all over the Caribbean islands. They understand that people, what they're looking for. And so with a little bit of guidance and training, I'm very excited about this site and, and Grenada and this family that has invited us to bring down adaptive divers in July. So um, I, I'm hoping that we'll be able to say there's another location for you to go. I love Grenada. Um, my actual, my first dives, I did a couple of DSDs just north of Grenada in the Tobago Keys. That was my introduction to diving. Um, and I'm actually going back to Grenada uh, in February with my family. Hmm. Um, you mentioned, I wanted to go back to something you mentioned a little earlier about the growth. Uh, I went from a club to now the, uh, the, the huge organization that it is today. Uh, what's that growth been like for you, Jim? And, you know, had, was it hard to sort of pass off? I assume you wore all the hats at the beginning. Uh, mm -hmm. was it, was it tough to sort of pass off some of these hats on, on something that you have literally grown from, from a seedling? Was it tough to kind of hand off the reins a little bit? It does take some getting used to. If you uh, have an entre entrepreneurial spirit and are used to shooting from the hip and kind of doing everything yourself, it is challenging to hand stuff off and, and not keep your hand, you know, keep your hands out of it. You know, that's challenging because I always want to jump in and, and do things. And it, it took time. It's probably taken years for me to really shut up and, and not get involved in certain things and just go, that's their job. You know, I might text somebody and go, Hey, did you know, you think about this or that, but yeah, I thought it was going to be a little club thing. Really. I thought it was going to be like the ski group I was part of where we would do some pool stuff. And then in the summer we'd go to the quarry because we're based in the Chicagoland area. And then we might go on a trip or two in during the course of the year to Florida or Cozumel or something. But now our training program is based on experience. I was a, an instructor trainer with another organization, the very first organization that was established, the Handicap School Association. Um, and that's pretty much strictly empathy training. They don't require experiences of their instructors or their, and, and we created a level of buddy certification called advanced buddy. So if you're a rescue diver or a dive master and you don't necessarily want to be an instructor, but you're really good in the water, like with a, being able to handle a quadriplegic, for example, you need experiences. So we have uh, 30 experiences that are required before you get your certification as an advanced buddy or an instructor. So you might go through, uh, you know, a training like at Rainbow Reef, for example, down in Key Largo, and they'll run you through empathy stuff, right? They'll make you blind, they make you para, make you quad. Here's your buddy card. You won't get an instructor card until you get those experiences. Um, and that's where, where our trips come in. In 2020, we canceled 14 trips, seven out of the country, because during the, this total immersion training, you're diving and living with people with disabilities all week. So Monday, you're with Johnny, who has autism, and Tuesday, someone with a spinal cord injury, and Wednesday, somebody with a traumatic brain injury or ALS. And by the end of the week, you've had so many different experiences. Plus, you've had breakfast, lunch, and dinner with these people. Maybe we've done a night dive. You've helped them transfer. You might have helped them do something near the pool, get food, whatever. And you get a real good sense of what's going on. And, this, and to some instructors' credit, they, they are not comfortable with just one trip. Um, one of the nonprofits that we help spin off or help facilitate, and we've, we've helped over 50 organizations start a nonprofit or individuals start their own nonprofit around the world. But they came, this guy and his wife came uh, like three times on a Cozumel trip and then started bringing dive masters and buddies and then started bringing adapt, you know, individuals, adaptive divers and stuff. And, and so now they're called SAFE uh, and they're in, up in the uh, Portland, Oregon area. SAFE is a scuba accessibility for everyone. And that's one of our instructor trainers. So if you're in Northwest, man, we send you right to Dale and, and Debbie uh, in, in Portland. And the same thing in Key Largo, we send you to Gabe at Horizon Divers right now, who, um, you know, does training and he just finished the training. He travels. Training. So that's yeah. nice too. Um, and that's, that's something that we've been building that capacity to travel to 
a location. You know, if you have five or six people who want to go through the training, it's much easier to send one person to you than six people to us, right? Um, so we try to accommodate that as well. So I want to go back to the empathy training and where did that specifically come from? How did that come about? And how do you think it changes divers after they learn about empathy training? Well, if I could jump in. Yeah, go ahead. With the skiing, what we would do is we would take individuals and we were guiding blind skiers. So we would first walk around the lodge and you would be blacked out, right? You'd be blind. And then we'd take you up on the hill. And what was fun for me is some of the best ski instructors in Aspen, it's fun when you you blindfold them and you watch them ski like 15 feet and then they fall over because they get vertigo. So we adopted a lot of the land clinic stuff that we did in skiing with diving. And it's just simply having you experience what it's like to have someone put a wetsuit on you, right? And, or, or have you, you know, tactily have to do stuff because you can't see stuff, you know, and your other senses kick in. They do. And I I can tell you my personal experience with um, when I simulated being a quadriplegic, which you can't do completely, right? We we don't even realize the muscles we use um, just without even thinking about them that, that they can't anymore, right? That someone who's a true quadriplegic cannot. But the idea of being underwater and being completely unable to do it yourself and relying on someone to clear my mask, to make sure my regulators in my mouth properly and that I'm breathing all right and that my ears are cleared and all of that stuff blew me away. Cause I'm like, why the hell do they let us do anything? Because, because it, to me, it just threw me like how much at the mercy of our ability these divers are and that hit me like a ton of bricks and um i think it's similar to other people you get really serious really quick when you experience the fact that i can't do this for myself i'm relying on somebody else my buddy better be top notch and that's why the quality part comes in right it's not about seeing the blue fish it is for the adaptive diver but it's not necessarily for the buddies. The buddies see, you know, Jim will tell you like, what'd you see that trip? Oh, well, I saw Jason's, you know, <laughs> whatever. And, and I had to adjust this and I had to adjust that. It wasn't about, you know, the big turtle that came down. Um, and, you know, people go through, it's, it's a learning process for everyone. So we so appreciate our adaptive divers who are willing to allow our students, our trainees, our candidates um, learn and they learn from everybody who comes on the trip. And, and it's not for everyone sometimes, you know, and, and we try to be very respectful of people who are like, I'm here to have a vacation. You know, I would like, you know, a season team, blah, blah, blah. We will, we will do our best to accommodate every, all those types of things, but it is very, um, we're very grateful for the people who allow us to continue to train people in the way that we do. That sounds like an incredible experience for those buddies. Um, it sounds like it'd be incredibly rewarding and, and miles and I've already experienced how rewarding it can be to, you know, even just to get an adaptive diver into the water and get them, you know, you, know, you guys have seen it, the big smile that they get mm-hmm. um, from your perspective now, sort of stepping back out of the direct role, what pies do you still keep your hands in? So, so let me say, Jim will, I have to keep him in the water. Aquaman <laughs> can't try out. Um, and, and he saw it at Mayo Clinic. I think that was the closest we got to fun diving in years. And the best day for him was when somebody's gear went wacky under the water. He's like, I got to help somebody. <laughs> and, um, and it was great. And the guy was grateful all week. Um, but, you know, for Jim now, the way that we we utilize his talent is, you know, he gets to go and observe the instructor trainers and the instructor trainer examiners that are out there and give input. So he gets to sit back underwater. He'll always get in the water. He, you know, he gets to sit back, make notes and be like, okay, here's my thoughts. Um, he's always on trips. He goes on every single trip that we do. So um, he's in the water that way as well. 
I reward myself with trips. Um, I'm kind of the back end of the house. I do all the, you know, sexy paying the bills and that type of thing. Um, but we, we're a small team. We're, we're a very small team of about five um, people doing everything. So we ask people to be patient with us sometimes, but the people that we do have working for us um, are excellent. Yeah. Having said that though, we've trained, I, I, you know, I started, we, we decided to do our own training program after I trained like a thousand instructors and buddies around the world. Cause I was going from one country to another, to another, without even coming back to the U S and, you know, we realized that we needed to develop our, our own program. And, and Jay, you asked about, um, if someone wants to get into this, an instructor or a dive master, I would start very slowly. Um, when I started, I was a PADI instructor and they have a certification. If it's not open water, you could certify someone as a scuba diver, someone who can do some of the skills, but maybe not all of them. And that was my adaptive certification. I would give that to individuals that I didn't trust just going out there with an in, another individual diver. So that was our first adaptive thing. And then got into the um, into the more formalized program of you know, doing the empathy stuff. But I would start out with mild, like a below the knee amputee or mild cerebral palsy where the, you know, stay away maybe from some of the cognitive stuff right away because there's a lot going on there. Some people have comorbidities where they have multiple disabilities at the same time. They might have a learning disability and they might have be visually impaired or something like that. So I would say take it easy, go slowly, and then graduate and build up to the quadriplegics. I mean, we helped with the first ventilator-dependent diver in the water, Matt Johnson in Minneapolis, where a ventilator would sit on the side of a pool and it would come into a custom dry suit. And then it would, the, inside the dry suit, the hose would go up to his trach and he wore the dry suit in a full face mask. And he communicated with eye blinks. So we were, we were actually working on another version of that um, after he quit diving with a guy named Lenny Larson. And he was uh, uh, he passed away in the middle of our, our doing research with Northwestern University engineering students and stuff. But we wanted to develop a device where we could put two ventilators in like an underwater camera housing and take them down to 100 feet if we wanted to. But, you know, there's a lot of science and stuff that goes on with developing something like that. So. Was he one of the main focuses with when you guys were talking with Mayo? We did not. We discussed, you know, having done that. But no, um, we were when we were introducing to Mayo, we did a lot of physical. We talked our, our talk was primarily on physical disabilities and how in their own practices or in their own, you know, coming across people with different disabilities, identifying how uh scuba diving may benefit them. Cool. What's been the most rewarding part of all of this work? I mean, you're talking, you're doing research, you're talking with the Mayo Clinic and doctors, you're, you're helping put people in the water. What's the most rewarding part of all of this? For me, I mean, the way I, I have another job that pays my bills, right? So I have a job that pays my bills Thank you guys. and I, mm. I stay of dive heart. It pays my soul. It really does. The people I meet, you know, the volunteers as well as the adaptive divers and the families and, and helping, like seeing someone develop. We met a young person. She was injured at 19. She's now 29. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> but over this decade of knowing her and, and seeing how she's developed as a person and as a diver and the things that she's done. And she came and she, she was our, um, summer intern a couple of uh, summers ago while she was still in, in college. And um, yeah, it's, it's uh, those types of things are what I know keep me going. Yeah. When someone self-identifies as a diver instead of somebody with a disability, that's very rewarding. And, and like I said, just watching the first time, watching somebody stand up underwater and look down and go, oh my God, I'm standing up for the first time. And some of the studies we've done, they said, uh, Illinois School of Psychology said, Jim, we've interviewed people all over the country that have worked with Dive Heart and the first dive is the most powerful. And I think part of that is because number one, breathing underwater is not natural, right? So we need to you know, wrap your head around that whole concept. And once they get used to breathing underwater, then 
getting out of their wheelchair and becoming completely independent is a whole nother thing. It's like, whoa, this is amazing. I'm breathing underwater and I'm not in my wheelchair. So that's, that's really cool watching that happen. And then like Tina Marie says, watching the families then who we've trained the, the, the buddies in the family and we've trained the adaptive diver. And now they independently go and travel to Cozumel or go to Florida or something. And they can do, this is a one activity. You know, you can't, you know, if you're in a wheelchair, there's a lot of things you cannot do with your child who has autism. This is something you can do. You know what I mean? This is something where the whole family can participate with a variety of disabilities, really. If you, just make sure you have the right team in the water. And that's what we teach is, is getting the right team. And that's what our certification card says. It says you need an adaptive dive team. You need an advanced adaptive dive team because you use a full face mask or you need other special considerations and stuff like that. You know, Matt Johnson had the blink to communicate. You know, you just can't do that with anybody, right? And so... So I was going to kind of start with that too, um, or like get into that as far as your standards go, how deep can you guys go? What, what regulations do you have like on a diver and like, do you still do the scuba diver versus the person that can go by themselves and they're both, um, they both have disabilities, but like, what is the different level that you teach and train to? So what we try and do with our certifications is if someone can get an open water certification, they should, they can get their open water certification. So then this is the way we're able to work with um, instructors from any agency. So as an instructor, you're working with someone and I get phone calls a lot where they're like, well, how do I know um, that they need a dive heart cert versus you know, PADI cert or an SDI cert or, you know, that type of thing. I'm like, well, they're SDI or they're PADI until they're not. You know the standards for that open water certification. When they cannot pass that open water certification, that's when Dive Heart comes in. And that's when you evaluate, can this person dive? Do they need a two-person team? That's our standard team is two people. Um, do they need a, a three-person team because they have a little bit more need? And really the third person is um, a safety for the buddies because the person with that who's the adaptive diver would not be able to come up and do a CESA on their own or come up on their own if one of their buddies needed assistance from the other buddy because there was an issue, right? So that that fourth person on the team, because we consider the adaptive diver to be a part of it, that fourth person on the team might be the one who's assisting the second buddy. And then now there's a buddy and the adaptive diver that can come up together. So there's different ways that we evaluate that. But the person, you know, we don't want to keep someone from getting an open water cert. Now I'm also in charge of risk. <laughs> so for me, I encourage people to, if there's ever a hesitancy, start with the adaptive cert, start with the adaptive cert. The more you dive, I think for all of us, the better you get. And we leave open the ability to be reevaluated or to change because we work with people who might go up in, in level and meaning that they might be able to get an open water cert maybe after 30 dives or 20 dives because they've been able to figure out the issues that they had that didn't cause them to pass the first time, right? Now they can figure out how am I going to bring myself safely up if there's an issue or, you know, things like that. Then on the other hand, we have people that um, like Tracy, who has ALS, she started out as a perfectly fine diver. She was certified before her disease. And now she is an advanced adaptive diver and she needs that four person team because she um, uses a full face mask. She needs extra help in the water. And, you know, if something happened, she would not be able necessarily to bring herself up. So that is how her trajectory is. But she loves diving so much. It's just like, keep me there for as long as possible. And that's what we're going to do. With, with consideration to the adaptive buddy who is maybe open water certified or they're advanced or whatever, 
do you think it's important or is it necessary for that person? If they're in a two-person team with someone, is it necessary for them to be a self-reliant diver? Well, they would always have a three-person team. So it's two buddies plus one adaptive diver. Oh, got it. So so you're not necessarily, you know, I I get what you're asking. Like, should they be able, should they be certified solo diver as well? Right. Or at least able to self-rescue. Right. Yeah, all I'm thinking is like a self-rescue for that one person that's helping. Yeah, well, what would happen is if if there were three and they needed to go up, they would all go up together. So we're never going to send someone solo up. Um, And even with the other scenario, that whole team goes up. We're just making sure that everyone can come up safely um, together. So the dive's aborted if there's mechanical issues or other issues and we all just go up together. Yeah, we always try to err on the side of safety. Uh, if you know you, you've been on boats where you've seen some really terrible open water divers, irresponsible, bad judgment, you name it. And I always imagine what if I'm working with an adaptive diver, I always imagine that person I'm teaching being with the worst diver in the world. And and I always err and say, you know, start like Tina Marie said with the adaptive dive team. It's more fun to dive with more people anyway, right? So now you got two buddies in the water helping you do stuff and uh, we'll just be in there with you instead of being out there on your own. We, we, you know, we've seen where people have, uh, you know, broken the rules a little bit and got almost got themselves in real trouble when they don't, when they don't stay with their team, you know, that we've helped them create. They know, they know the standards, they know what to do but they go out and they try to do stuff on their own. And it's like, nah, it's not a good idea. Always be safe. And the, the buddy, so we asked that new buddies have at least 20 dives, very arbitrary, but we were, you know, we needed to, to figure something out. Um, and some people, even after their open water are excellent divers. Um, but we, we have that. And then we also um, have been told time and time again, after you take the buddy training, you're a better diver. Um, you work a lot on, you know, buoyancy. You work a lot on a different skills that you didn't realize were so important to helping you as an individual diver when you go diving without adaptive divers, right? So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that and that I think applies to any sort of you know additional training beyond your open water class. If you're if you're thinking about buoyancy in in a different way, whether you're going for your advanced, your rescue, your adaptive buddy, your adaptive instructor, your paddy instructor, for example, you're going to learn more about the physics and the mechanics of buoyancy and all these other things that because you're having to think about them from someone else's perspective. Um, what and, and and that's a great segue actually into the next question that I wanted to get to, which is. What lessons have you or dive hard or do the buddies learn from teaching and, and working with adaptive divers that have translated to other parts of your life or other parts of your scuba diving career? Um, are you, and, and then corollary to that, are there lessons that Miles and I as instructors, are there lessons that we can take back to our open water classes? Yeah, I, I think as instructors, you probably already do this, but one of the things we always say is, you know, be ready to adapt, right? You have a plan, and then the minute you ex- start executing the plan, it changes, right? Not everybody showed up that you thought was going to show up. Um, you know, you get in the water and something else happens, or a piece of equipment is is misbehaving, or, you know, things like that. So we tell people at the beginning of every trip, you know, just remember that you're going to have to adapt. Like we, we anticipate something will not go the way we planned. Um, and that's a big lesson, not just in the water, but for life, right? Um, yeah, a great example of that is uh, there's a book I refer to a lot of people called The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. And it's it's basically perspective, action, and perseverance. And it's it's a stoic kind of philosophy, but um, good divers are always learning, right? We've, we've heard that more than once. But a good example is we came up um, right before COVID and we're, we're in Cozumel, we're on a dive trip. I come up and there, we have four teams of quadriplegics, right? So there's four people in each team and we come up and a boat pulls up and it says, come on and get on the boat. And, and I said, you're not our boat operator. And they said, that's right. Your boat broke down. It's on the other side of the island. So now I have, now I have four quadriplegics who need cushions, who don't have their wheelchair, that don't have their meds, 
uh, we, you know, you know, we, you know what they say about wetsuit divers, right? There are those who pee in their wetsuit and those that lie about it, right? Well, these people have to cath. They have to cath when they get a, um, back on the boat. And it, there's no catheters there. So I'm like, from the side of the boat to the transom, I'm evaluating right away on the fly. No one on the boat knows how to transfer. So I'm immediately barking out orders, getting the right people up on the boat, saying, get those life vests, those orange life vests, put those down. We're going to use those as cushions, telling the dive master to tell the captain, tell that radio our boat, get a fast boat to go get those medical supplies minimally so that we can get these guys, you know, because otherwise there's something called autonomic dysreflexia where um, the noxious stimulus can raise your blood pressure and, and they can actually have a stroke. Uh, so which is it's very serious. So we're, you know, we got everybody on the boat. Luckily we got all the supplies back in time, but now what we did, that next summer is we went and we dove with catheters in our BC pockets, uh, stuck in our wetsuits, in little Pelican cases, and we tested them all to like 100 feet. Mm -hmm. And now we require- Went out to medical professionals and got their opinion yeah. and, you know, what what is the protocol that, you know, what's worse? And they're like, um, it's worse to have a stroke. So even if, you know, the integrity of the catheter, maybe it broke a little bit and it's it's a little wet. They're like, I'd rather you do that and and we treat with antibiotics for making sure there's no infection than not do the catheter and and alleviate that um, issue. So we we did all that. And that's where I was referring to earlier about us being taking the toughest cases, learning these types of things, and then sharing that knowledge with people, right? And I'm sorry, I cut you off. That's all right. I'm used to it. <laughs> no, just, you know, yeah, I'm not hearing you. Oh, you're on mute. You're on mute. <laughs> we can tell that there's a good partnership. You guys have worked together for a while, <laughs> finishing each other's sentences. Yeah, definitely. So what is the biggest day-to-day -day challenge? I mean, it sounds like just the adapting to an, you know, an individual need may be that challenge, but is there a, from sort of a bigger dive heart organizational level, what are the biggest challenges that you face day-to-day? -day and then what's your sort of long-term outlook? What are you seeing as the, as the roadblocks that you might have to overcome? Well, right now we're, uh, we're going to pay for a feasibility study. We want to build a deep warm water therapy pool so that we can replicate some of the benefits that we've seen in open water because people can't run to Cozumel or Florida all the time, right? There's a lot of cost involved. So if we can have a facility that's deep and, and warm for people who have thermoregulation issues, then we can replicate a lot of these things. And, and it'd be a great training destination for people all over the world. One out of five people in the world have a disability. It's 20% of the population. So there's a lot of people that can benefit from this. And as, as the population ages too, there's a lot of benefit for people like baby boomers and people that are starting to get you know, geriatric and stuff. Just getting them in the warm water and things like that really helps a lot. Yeah, mobility, I think, is key to... Um, living longer, mm -hmm. right? If you keep moving, keep walking, keep, you know, the longer we can have someone uh, be able to uh, move themselves uh, from here to there is is going to hopefully extend their quality of life as well as their life in general. Mm -hmm. um, for me, um, you know, I, we have some amazing volunteers, but I'm always looking for the next volunteer that could help us on the non-water side of things, you know, who might, you know, know, help us with our database, help us with other things like that. Um, I'm always looking for, and, and the last person who offered to help, you know, she's like, so do you need some help anywhere? And I was like, oh, you're so going to regret asking. Yeah. <laughs> But she is now, you know, the person who does our day-to-day -day, um, interaction with all of our training people. You know, she, her name's Julie, and she thought she was retired. And she, you know, she's telling me, sending me emails and saying, you know, I thought I was done with this part of my life. Only you would make me open a computer, you know, type of thing. She uh, is an instructor on Roatan right now. So not only that, she also is dealing with um, not the best internet situation all the time. 
Uh, but people like that are, are godsends to us a lot of times. I think growing, this is our 22nd year, and I think growing responsibly is very important and, and not getting too far out over your skis, if you know what I mean, uh, because it's really easy to get in trouble. I, I mean, I came from a media company that the Chicago Tribune, you know, WGN radio, TV, newspaper, and, and, and now the Tribune Tower is condominiums because they got too far out over their skis, bad management decisions, you know, and all of a sudden, boom, the environment changes, the world changes. So. Well, and, and, and getting to the point where, you know, once you reach the top, uh, you have to remind yourself that you can't just sit back. I mean, the top is there. Everybody wants to be there. And, and if you stop changing, stop adapting, stop realizing that there's something new out there in the world. And, and that has... You know, Jim and I aren't getting any younger like everybody else. And, you know, that's another reason why we're also trying to reach younger instructors. You know, let's we have a lot of volunteers that are older. Um, we love them and they help out. You know, it's, we couldn't do this without them. But the more young people we get involved, that also helps us. It'll help us grow. It'll help us develop. It'll help us realize what Jim and I or other people might not be seeing as changes that are happening in the industry and then just out in the world to, altogether. That's part of why Miles and I started this podcast. We realized that, you know, the dive industry is of a certain age and, you know, the average age in the dive industry is maybe higher than it is in a lot of other places, especially around the hobbies and, and lifestyle industries, right? So we wanted to kind of reach out. I mean, I listen to podcasts every morning, uh, you know, before I start work and every afternoon when I'm work working out or other things. So we, we wanted to reach out to that next, you know, next generation of, of people and divers and, you know, keep that community growing. Um, so I know we're coming to the end of our time here. I wanted to wrap up with sort of the most important question for, for both of you personally. And, and uh, that is, what keeps you motivated? The whip she carries keeps me motivated. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Fortunately, it's not always the lasso of truth, but yeah. Uh. <laughs> I think he, if I spoke for him, I would say what keeps him motivated is just the idea of he can't go past a person without, if, they, if he sees someone in need, he will offer to help. He gives little kids who have their lemonade stand out there 20 bucks and says, I don't want lemonade, but I want you to keep doing what you're doing. This is a good idea. Right. And, and one of those little kids two years later came back and he, he told his dad, I want to volunteer for dive heart because he helped me, you know, that one day. And, and so for him, his motivation is people and the idea of helping people, everything he does, every action he does throughout the day is because it's helping somebody or will help somebody at the end. That's his end goal. Funny. He puts the heart in dive heart. <laughs> Abs absolutely. I mean, you know, I, without, you know, his vision and, and we're trying to also, there's a lot of people that get motivated by him. And I think there's a lot of people out there who I see could be the person, right. That, that does this. They're also motivated that way. Um, but we're lucky to have Jim at the helm, you know, motivating all of us. Um, for me personally, do I get to speak to you? No. Go yeah, you could. No, what, I, I would be very curious as to what you'd say. Well, I I think that Tia Marie is um, since she's come on, she's rediscovered uh, things about herself that and, and and she's very creative and and so taking those some of those talents that might be latent when you do a corporate job long enough, right? And just like exposing those and identifying those and, and growing those. I don't know. How's that yeah. I, I love learning and I learn something every day with dive art, you know, a new application that we're trying to use, you know, learning how to post a reel versus a photo on Instagram, that type of thing. Um, Talk to miles. She does a, she's, she's, right. she's the queen of Instagram for us. I, I, I I'm useless. That's tough. <laughs> It is. It's tough knowing we, we hired a, a social media person last year and she has brought us to a new uh, level. Yeah. I mean, people are like, wow, your, your posts are pretty cool. I'm like, yeah, because we're not doing them anymore. Um, <laughs> oh, it's overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. But I, I do love and I do love interacting with the people every we, we joke. We're like every day is at Christmas at Dive Park because we'll get a, a donation of a gear donation or something or we get an amazing um phone call or we get to do podcasts like this 
this is what keeps me motivated, sharing the story, mm-hmm. uh, you know, meeting interesting people. There was an article I read uh, about how tough it is as adults to find new friends. And, and mm. you, know, you don't interact with people. And if you move to a new place or, you know, you lose your job and you're trying to find your way in a new one, it's very difficult. I have been blessed with Dive Heart. I don't have that problem. I meet new friends all the time through what I'm doing. So I guess the the lesson there is go volunteer somewhere and you'll hopefully find new friends as well. But, you know, organizations like this allow you to meet just amazing people. And I think a great way to grow the dive industry among young people is, and what we've been trying to do is really develop a playlist on like YouTube, for example, where we have 11 symposiums, you know, with university medical centers that we've done you know, for years, um, or military, you know, the military playlist is great. I mean, I've trained at Pendleton, I've trained SEALs in Coronado and Great Lakes Naval Base. And, and, and some of these stories are inspiring. Um, you know, some people, I mean, we're, we're up for an award right now where David Marsh did profiles on, uh, individuals with autism and, and different disabilities. And, and she's young people, young people who's and the parents come on this profile and go, I, I, this is a different kid. You know, she comes on this dive trip and all of a sudden this child doesn't need any help. She's independently doing things. And this is somebody in their twenties, you know, so, you know, getting, I think when, when, when people without disabilities see people with disabilities doing something like diving, like we have somebody with no arms and no legs, we take diving people go, but I can't swim. I can't dive. Well, here's Anna has no arms and no legs. <laughs> you know what I mean? All you got to do is control your, your buoyancy with your breathing. That's why we love Cozumel. We put you in the current and you control your breathing and, and you know, we'll, we'll move you now and then when you need to, but otherwise you got this. So watching and sharing some of those stories of hope and healing is the way I love to grow and inspire Dive Heart and, and what we do. And we're, we're excited to share the Dive Heart story with, with all of, with all of our, uh, our listeners. So I want to thank you both so much for coming on. Um, this has really been a really incredible uh, time with you. And uh, Miles and I have both been watching the documentary and, and going through your YouTube and, you know, as you, you've probably felt this too, but every time I get in the water with veterans or with uh, adaptive divers, um, it's tough for me to take my mask off. Uh, because I, you know, I don't want to be the, also the guy that's, that's a little, uh, my mask fogs up a lot more when I'm with adaptive divers than with, (laughs) um, you know, it, it it is, it is inspiring and emotional and, uh, you know, we're so, we're so grateful to you guys for coming on and, and sharing that story. Um, we will be at DEMA in the fall. We would love to do a catch up with you guys after, uh, the Grenada trip. So hopefully we'll grab some time at DEMA and we'll see, we'll talk again then. Um, but you know, really appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much. All right. Wow. That was an awesome interview. Yeah, that was really, really good. Just like heartening and like also informative. I had no idea stuff like that was going on. Yeah. I mean, we kind of got a sense of it. Um, you know, we got to, we got to work with Life Waters uh, the other weekend, which was really amazing. And obviously you guys heard all the incredible interviews that came out of that. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 it's always heartening and, and somewhat emotional for, at least for me, to hear that scuba is being used in these incredible ways to heal people. No, 100%. Yeah. I, I'm really thankful that we had Dive Hard on. And yeah, we're just looking forward to more interviews in the future. Yeah, we've got a couple of really interesting interviews coming up in the next couple of weeks and months. So definitely stay tuned. We've got some really, really incredible people that we're going to have on. So if there's any, anybody that you guys know that you want to have on or want us to have on that you don't know if we're talking to yet, Hit us up on Instagram. Send us an email. Let us know. Uh, we'd love to. Uh, we'd love to have them on. And, yeah, for uh, and sure. What they've got. So, Miles, before we wrap up, um, I am headed out to the ocean, and I have a float, and I want to name my float. What should oh, I God. name my float? No, I want to name um, it. I don't have a name for mine, but maybe Mister Float. I don't know. <laughs> okay, here are the here are the front runners right now. Uh, we've got the, we've got the, the classic floaty McFloat face. 
uh, Soldier Buoy. Oh, I like that. With the caveat, crank that, Soldier Buoy. I like that. Um, because you have to crank the anchor into the sand, get it? Okay, all right, um, we get it. And then my my favorite one right now is Floatwood Mac. Oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, you told me about that one. I do like that yeah, one. I like Floatwood Mac. That's the front runner right now. So you guys will put up a poll on Instagram or something. You guys can vote for these or submit your own. Um, the best one will become my float name and I'll paint it onto the float or something. By the Woo! way, the float is big and bright and yellow. Um, so just think about that when you're thinking about names. If they're color related, it, it, the float is big and yellow. Um, and with that, we will wrap it up. I know this has been one of our longer episodes, but the we wanted to really get into um, you know some of the some of the stories that Dive Heart had to tell. So uh, we'll wrap it up there. We hope everybody enjoyed the interview. Let us know what I should name my float, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Thank you guys so much. As always, I'm Miles. I'm Jake. And this is Free Descent. <laughs>